anybody listening here, if you have your money on Binance and you don't have a hardware wallet, you don't belong in the space. Get out. Shut it down. Sell it. Get it. Right. You got, you cannot be like, you can be using Binance. There's a lot of cool tools there and it's an interesting product. But if you're storing your funds capital, your LPs capital on Binance in this moment, considering the range of rumors uh, circulating, I would question the competency of that. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tommy and I'm here with Ryan Zer and Santiago Santos. We're back with another episode. We're going to start off with the recent conferences we hit. Uh, we did Permissionless. We did Token 2049. Uh, Santi, why don't we start with you on uh conference you hit? I, yeah, I mean, I went to Permissionless. Um, I, it was interesting. Uh, it was in Austin. I wanted to see, I think the, the attendee base is very, probably the most diversified. You know, you had people from government, you had companies, you had uh, certainly crypto investors. It was happening at the same time while token 2049. Apparently it was, uh, you know, 3000 or so attendees. It didn't feel like that because the venue was so big. But, you know, you, you and I were on the panel of like, who's still investing in crypto? Um, you had some really interesting panels as well. I think the, if I were to say the biggest takeaway for me in that conference was that it felt to me that non-crypto people, particularly companies, like you had JP Morgan there, you had folks from uh, numerous corporations that have like, you know, been interested in, in utilizing this PayPal and whatnot. It felt like those people were more excited about crypto than crypto natives. And it just reminded me of this happens in every cycle. Like there is a time where the skepticism and the morale within crypto people is just so high, is so low and volatile that, you know, it was just, it was just really interesting because to see that, and I think it, it reflects the state of the market we're in. And it also reflects the kind of that this technology has come a long way. I don't think we're in that 2018, everyone is slapping blockchain to their public uh you know public companies using blockchain in their reports the same way they're using ai right now to, to as a marketing kind of uh gimmick i think is the work is real the intent and the commitment is real uh you know we record a podcast with the, uh the head of jp morgan crypto and they've been working on this for six years now and they have so many products under the hood that they can't talk about publicly um and so you know later on in the pod we can talk about things that that I, th those corporations kind of need to see like privacy is huge. And until we have that, it's going to be difficult to properly like have these folks operate in a public environment, but they're doing a lot of the work in anticipation that these solutions are going to be built. So that was my biggest takeaway. Like, you know, the morale in crypto is very low. People are fighting on Twitter all the time. And, but, uh, non-crypto people seem to be more optimistic about crypto, which is an interesting, uh, I guess point. Yeah, I mean, I was at Permissionless with Santiago. Um, as for takeaways, I mean, definitely saw a lot of good early stage companies, a lot of a lot of AI focused ones, a lot on ETH. I guess what what I did see was just glimmers of a just a renewed focus on Ethereum, zk Tech being built on Ethereum, and and the ecosystem around there. Like, I mean, we didn't didn't see a lot of other Alt L ones mentioned. Didn't see a lot of a big ecosystem push there. Did see a big push by ZK Sync, Scroll, Linea, which is the ZK EVM built by Consensus. It seemed like there was just a pretty strong renewed focus there. And that kind of bleeds into the, the modular versus monolithic side. I think one of my favorite takeaways was 
uh, Sriram from Eigenlayer, which we invested in. We had a, a bit of a side chat discussing module versus monolithic. And he just continued to argue that, you know, you have to serve developers and take advantage of the largest ecosystem uh, makes sense. And technicals don't exist solely in a vacuum. So he thinks that Ethereum is not the fastest or the cheapest chain, but it's at a maximization point where it's good enough and improving technically coupled with the largest ecosystem of value and people. And I thought that was a, a solid takeaway. Yeah. So we had team members at 2049 and whenever team members go and do a conference, we, we try to institutionalize that, that knowledge and get a report. And so the report uh, indicated that a, um, some level of surprise by all of us of how quickly the Singaporean uh, market has come back because Singapore um, prohibited Binance. Uh, everybody had migrated to to FTX, and some people got like really crushed. And so Singapore was a mausoleum sort of last year at this time. Um, and so it seems to like be gaining steam and coming back strongly. There is, you know, just a thousand L2s flowering a lot in the optimism ecosystem. Uh, and there seems to be just this like, uh, you know, to, to your point, Tommy, this threshold of developer mindshare migrating back to, to ETH saying, Hey, it's, you know, this is good enough for, for us to build on and, and, and be here. And thusly, you know, we continue to see value bleed from the alt layer ones sort of the like ETH killer generation of, of late 2017, 2018, while there are some really interesting novel experiments popping up. Um, and, and so those were, were two things combined with a very cautious fundraising environment where if you haven't, if you're a capital allocator and you haven't delivered a DPI, you know, comfortably above two, then you're really like, you got a long road, a tough road ahead of you. And, and so we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing this sort of like filtering of the real players in capital allocation from the pretenders. And we continue to see more and more funds um, taking their, their last breath of, of air before shutting down. Um, which Ryan, could you, could you just us. give some color there? Like what, how many funds are not at that mark where they've at least returned two X their initial investment? Like what percentage of funds just do not meet that mark? Um, I mean, ultimately it's a vintage question, right? Uh, if you were around prior to September, 2017, you basically got there. If you launched like post that you'd be really, you'd, you know, you got some real challenge unless you, hit some big winners. Um, yeah, it, you know, you and I have talked about this before on pods where it, I'm constantly reminded that you're not that smart and luck plays such a, an important role in this game because timing is often really can be expressed in terms of, of, of luck. Uh, and so really it, it's about timing. I would say you know, difficult to, to, to estimate across the approximately 750 funds globally that we've had, but probably less than 50 uh, are above a 2x DPI at this point. Um, I, in fact, I'd say confidently less than 50. I write yeah. LP checks into a lot of funds and, and you know, less than 10% uh, uh, are even approaching that number. Yep, I agree. In terms of, it's important distinction, like MOM is not DPI. 
because you mm-hmm. know a lot of these things are liquid and get marked up, you know, to some sort of discount. But DPI is like how much you've actually returned, and mm-hmm. it's easier to do for venture funds, which there are plenty in crypto. There's also a liquid venture structured as hedge funds. They have a combination of liquid positions and early stage positions. So it's it's difficult because the DPI, unless you've redeemed, you're not getting that, right? Unlike a yeah. venture. And so a lot of funds um, are structured as liquid, as a hedge fund. And so, yep. you know, say that even you invested in like, you, you had, it's very frustrating because I also talked to the largest fund of funds. And they always struggle with, well, so what's better? Should we invest in the next pure venture fund, 10-year commitment, or a hedge fund and that is going to invariably do early stage stuff because you want to be doing that. And the challenge there for, for Liquid is, say that you invested in 2017, you would have been up at 1.30x or more on some funds. Yep. And now you're down considerably. You're may, maybe still up 10x, actually. But that's not DPI. That's that's just mark to market to some sort of valuation framework for the illiquid stuff that can't be easily like liquidated. A lot of it might be locked. So that's the challenge. And both the opportunity and the challenge of crypto is that you have to kind of hit the, I want to redeem now, give me my money. And they're not giving you all of it. Um, some might have gates. So it's it's quite challenging, I think, still. Part of the opportunity in crypto is that. But yeah, it's... it's uh, it's difficult for those funds, especially if they have clawbacks. If you're down a lot, if you're up a lot one year and then you're down a lot the next year, you need to make up to this high watermark to then begin to collect carry, which really messes the incentives for an allocator. Some of them take excessive risk to get back to that, you know, above water, if you will, to start clipping carry. And, and that risk taking uh, is very challenging. I don't know what the answer to that is other than if I'm investing my own money to a new manager, I'd rather, given the choice of investing in a liquid fund that has been around for a while but has a really high watermark on a lot of the capital, right, mm-hmm. versus a new manager or a new fund, new vintage, might be pure venture, I would choose that category, the new venture or the new vintage, because it's just a clean slate. And a lot of times yeah. in liquid, you don't have that clean slate. And it a lot of the market also profit taking and dynamics, I think are informed by those type of funds that are trying to kind of make it all back or just, um, you know, uh, get above that high watermark, which you have to really clean up a lot of that stuff. And it's probably going to take a couple of years to get there. I think you saw that in the last cycle. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you look well, at this, Tommy, from an allocator's perspective as a GP? Yeah. I mean, the, the one point I'd want to hit on that, that Sandy brought up is just like, how funds react in bull and bear markets. One of the worst things I think a fund to do in a bull market is to aggressively exit and reinvest capital. I don't know, Ryan, if you would disagree with this, but once a once yeah, you're in a bull I do, market, but I'll, I'll avoid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I, maybe I should have taken the other side, but no, no go ahead. Go ahead. Basically, you're in a bull market. You're making the already hard decision that most funds don't do, which is to exit, whether that be. OTC, liquid reassignments, things like that. It's a it's a hard process. It's annoying. It takes a long time. If you do go through that process to exit, now you obviously have tax liabilities to your LPs, right? You sold an asset, you have a gain. A lot of funds or some funds will say, hey, you know what? We're doing great. Let's reinvest that capital. So now we not only have a tax liability that we may or may not be able to pay out to LPs, some, are, some have to, some don't, 
Um, but they're also investing at the height of valuations in a bubblish market, which means not only do you owe money to your LPs, but now you're chasing a trend when you should be doing the opposite. So yeah, it's kind of tangential to what Santi's saying, but I think that there shouldn't be reinvesting in funds. I think funds should just aggressively distribute in bull markets. And I think right now is the absolute perfect time to be aggressively investing in private deals or liquid opportunities that are that are great because you're not going to invest at these valuations or these non-tourist teams in a bull market. You have to do it now and you have to wait a couple of years. Yeah. So my view on this based on uh, on the experience that I've had over the years is that the correct architecture is that you separate out the the types of investments. So you have venture vehicle that invests venture style, uh, liquidates sometime between, you know, TGE and TGE plus 180 days. We've done some analysis internally that has shown that, you know, a, a basket of of any number one of or any number of L1s uh, that have come out underperform ETH beyond 180 day timeline on on the aggregate, uh, and that should be different than your liquid book. And you get all these venture funds that will liquidate a win hold it then in ETH or in Bitcoin and then hold it to the term of seven, you know, plus two, plus two, or, 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 or whatever the, the, the length of the fund is. Uh, and then, you know, their idea there is that they're going to catch the 20 on whatever appreciation in Bitcoin and ETH uh, they have. I think that that is, you know, that is not the mandate of the early stage venture vehicle to then like hold, you know, take a win in year three and hold Bitcoin for, for another five years. Um, and you should prioritize distributing because you have such high beta in this market. The volatility is so expressive. Take the wins where you can. And, and like, I can tell you that it feels really good once you get above a two DPI, right? Then you kind of like made it. You're playing for your yeah for well, the, the, the challenge with that ryan is right. i don't disagree with you i actually have looked at that as well in terms of the trading pro the issue though is that your vesting schedule is you know when you say actually practically liquidate 180 days you can't do that practically unless you're selling it means you guess you could OTC. you know hedge at otc you could yeah. you know do some combination of perps and whatnot, take shorts yeah 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 you could do a, a number yep. of strategies okay yeah i just wanted to clarify that because but, typically the vesting schedule is you know you got to if, if you're not doing that and some funds are not sophisticated enough to do that, or there's, it's not practically possible. It takes two years to actually exit the position. Yeah. yeah. Look, we invested early. We backed you. We loved you. We helped you build, but you know, Hey, look, I want to exit my entire position within 180 days. Like how well, do you maybe maintain not, the relationship? Maybe not. With yeah. You're not saying I want to exit my entire position in 180 days. What I'm saying is that objectively the data shows that in infrastructure investments, the optimal uh, exit window is within 180 days. On the aggregate, looking at, we've looked at, I think, two dozen examples of, of, of sort of the ETH killer generation and now looking at generation three. And um, I'm not saying that that's what you do. I'm just saying that like the data shows that that's the optimal investment strategy. And, and like you do then have to be pragmatic about yeah, you know, we'll take principal off table, pr take principal plus X off table because we, you know, we're pragmatic entrepreneurs. And, and often what I'll, I'll, I'll say is because we're the ones sitting liquid, 
when you bottom out in year three, you are the ones back buying, right? Oh. Um, and it's, it, 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 that's also useful for, uh, for an entrepreneur that like we uh -huh. won't totally get out of it, but we, but we will be pragmatic about cash management. I think there's two things there, which is it's, it's the hardest thing. One of the hardest things you do, right? But you have to focus on risk management. One, what's the probability of something that's already up 50x, 100x in your book to do another that? And in venture, it's a power law. So you need one or two. If you don't have one or two or three 100x, you're probably not going to make it to that two DPI. So you go back to the founder and say, I need to take chips off the table. It's become such a large position of the portfolio. It's proper risk management. And I'm going to use that capital to reinvest in folks as I did with you when no one wanted to give you money. And I need to find those. Or sometimes a combination of that plus investing in the ecosystem in startups that are building on top of if it's an infrastructure investment. Um, I generally tend to find that the best founders have no problem with that. They're like, hey, just do it in a graceful manner. Find a right, a right home for that position. And there's ways to do that. Uh, difficult more now because there's very little liquidity, but the OTC market's thriving and it's actually booming right now. Um, and so th there's ways to execute these things. And so at, at the end of the day, I think the strongest founders very, you know, most of the time don't react like negatively to that. They, they understand that it's, there's time to exit a position. And that doesn't mean you're not going to continue to help them, by the way. It's like, it's capital, but my help, I'm still here. The other thing that I have often done over the years as well as do buy side OTC with the founder pre-launch often. So like pre-launch, they want some liquidity, buy a house, so, so on and so forth. I'll do buy side on that. And then like, you know, you have a transparent relationship with the founder where like, Hey, you're being, you know, you're being real about your own like portfolio balancing and, and, you know, and, and realizing the volatility of the, of this. So me six or 12 months later, also being real with myself and with my, my investors about this is, is just authentic. Right. And, and most of these founders, you know, understand that. Uh, and because now we've had enough years and enough stories of like, you know, the billionaire founder that wrote back to, to nothing or the, you know, the guy who, who like just never even looked at a pie chart of, of their net worth to realize that 99.9% .9 of their wealth was in a, an, in a, a locked up token, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, that people are more pragmatic about that in the space. Like if you look around the space, the top founders that people really respect from Vitalik all the way down have been pragmatically taking chips off the table the whole way up. I would, I think that's a hugely positive signal. I mean, it's less just, they're going to be more focused having taken chips off the table and, and it's fairly common to venture too. I mean, you, you see some recent IPOs and you know, it's, it's fairly common for, for founders to take chips. They should, I mean, I would encourage them all day long. If a founder comes to me and says, I want to take chips off the table. I say, yeah, of course, you're going to be more motivated to then continue to build equity value on the position that you have left. Now, different story. If it comes to me as a secondary and says want to sell it wants to sell 90% of the book, you're like, well, what's wrong here? You know? But yeah, you know, I, I'm with you guys on founders exiting to get some capital to not have to worry about bills and stuff. The the one tangential thing I do not like from founders, maybe this is a little spicier because you know it's it's happened over the past couple of months, is founders who realize that their projects aren't going well and decide to make a last minute pivot instead of returning capital to venture funds. 
That's oh, something God. that I feel very strongly about. Oh, you're about. touching it's a nerve. You, you, something you that like, a nerve. I came here spicy. Oh, I came oh, here spicy. delivered on this price. 30% you, of the, what is it? 30% of your, of your portfolio companies are in that state where you're like, guys, like stop going to conferences, keep like return the money. Well, it's just the, the, the thing that I don't understand is like you spend a, a really long time diligencing a founder on a specific vertical, right? And you take a mm -hmm. lot of risk with other people's money or your own money to back somebody and their vision. And then they come to you six months later, a year later, 18 months later, and they say, hey, you know what? Things aren't going well. We decided we're going to do this totally new thing, and we figured it out in the last two weeks. Like The thought process just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I frequently tell people, like, I mean, obviously, legally, most funds, again, don't really have a say, right? If you're investing in a safe or a token or something, you don't have any real investor rights to, to block or make any real decisions unless you're doing your own docs and legitimate diligence, which you know, doesn't, isn't always the case with an early stage investment on the, the documentation side. But I always tell them like, if it's not going well, return capital, you know, maintain your brand and your reputation. And we're happy to back the next thing you do and go through the normal diligence process. But it's just hard to get excited about a pivot when it has nothing to do with your original investment. And that is exactly the thing. So if we gave you capital at the peak and you have call 40, 40% left over of the capital and you return the capital we're actually up eth if we could be up eth against say 21 or what or whatever it is you know that's a hug it out that's a that's a next time you come through the door we're probably writing you a check that's a that's a really positive high integrity situation whereas too many founders look at this as their personal trust funds that they just want to bleed to zero. But then what they don't understand is that is your last kick at the can ever at that. So you better have enough money to live on forever because no one's ever written you a check for anything ever again, not a popsicle stand, not, not a crypto project, not anything. And, you know, one of the real issues that we face in the spaces, especially when it's a token, you know, a token driven investment, there's a complete dearth of legal recourse. Right. The number of foundations sitting on untold billions of dollars that have delivered no value whatsoever. And these, you know, these Swiss Stiftungs or, or Cayman foundations have just turned into glorified trust vehicles for the, for the founders and the, and the board is egregious. You know, I have really wanted somebody to do an activist, um, fund going and Ooh, pursuing these treasuries. Yeah, Mark did this to some extent, but not executed as an activist should. I think it was you could quit. Uh, yeah, I have my reservation. And the problem is, there's no, there isn't enough legal recourse. You don't have the same rights that you have as a shareholder, and so you can't. Right? How big are the treasuries? How, how much are you talking? Like block one, Golem. Like these are billion dollar plus. I mean, so block Massive. one, I think, has more Bitcoin than MicroStrategy Sailor. Like, like, that in, and that's including the billion that's lost from the sale, right? I think a billion was. A four billion. It's a four billion dollar unregulated sales but, securities. But I think they ended up only having access to three billion. I have to check. Something something yeah. was weird there you with know, the sale. Rounding error. Yeah. None, nonetheless, <laughs> we look. We 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 did an analysis on this because we thought about getting activist in 2020, and you know, and I had um, I had participated in the conversations that uh, that led to to the Digistow uh, wind out, um, and that was just like you go to the founders and you're like, look. You know, you're the largest token holder. If you return this treasury, which is a multiple of your token, 
you're actually the one who like benefits the most from this. Right. And, and Sean was really pragmatic about that and he did it. But we've had, we then went and had like six other conversations and all these guys would dance around to not admit that this is just a trust fund to pay them out forever. And you can probably monitor this on chain, but like they're bar, they're probably borrowing against that, right? To diversify. They're not selling just because optically they still hold that, but they probably have a ton of like. They're all just buying buy T-bills right now. Yeah. The number of T-bills held by Swiss Stiftons right now would boggle the mind. Yeah. Tens I mean, of billions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, it is- get a hold of this, uh, and I have the number now. Block One has over 200,000 Bitcoin. MicroStrategy, given their latest purchase, they bought like 4,400 Bitcoin this, this week. Yeah, they have 167. They, right? they, they have like 158,000. Yeah. So, are we sure yeah. we want them returning that capital though? Like, are we sure we want that Bitcoin and ETH sell pressure? The- <laughs> I, uh, mean, I mean, this is well, yeah, also goes back to my discovery. Yeah, let, let it rip. I mean, rip. get the band yeah. out. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is going to be a conversation also for Mt. Gox, if and when that happens, all the other different creditors. And also, uh, what's a, what's another big one? I mean, you have obviously FTX, FTX now. FTX uh, on the horizon. And, and, those are some and big, the conversion of, of Grayscale products, GBTC, ETHE. Like at the end of the day, I mean, if you have an ETH, like that, that ultimately, because in the market, I'm always a proponent. You just, it's better to have more transparent and efficient price discovery. Yeah, 100%. Like, if you think that people are not looking at these things and, and doing some structure around it to hedge that risk, you don't understand markets well enough because sophisticated players are looking at that and already, you know, it's already kind of to some extent priced in and people are doing that on the margin. So it's really, in my mind, a nothing burger. Like just let's distribute it, get it out in the open market and, and let it, let that you know, run its course. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say that in some cases like FTX, it's probably overpriced in where like people are like, ah, you know, all the Solana is going to hit the market. And it's like actually not because Sam was on a seven year vest with that Solana. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a long, a long bleed of, of, of shipping all that, that SOL out the door. Um, whereas other things are more, um, you know, just more unknown. It, they, it, it could hit the market all at once, you know, whether you had legislation that allowed people to go after some of these egregious foundations that have delivered no value or whether you have, you know, something like Binance completely, um, completely blow up and get treated like, uh, you know, like tornado cash. So it's, it's sanctioned, not just, you know, in a legal process and everybody's got to get out, out the door all at once. Um, there are most of the, most of the time things are priced in, but there are some events that are, are, are could be really dramatic for the space as well. I think that's a good segue to Binance. Ryan, you want to take that one away? So, you know, there's a, a, a lot of discussion in the space right now. Um, uh, you know, there's been some, a bunch of tweets, Adam Cochran put, put one out yesterday of uh, of speculation of just how deep this goes. Um, Are you done reading think, that thread, Ryan? They take me like <laughs> a couple hours. <laughs> well, it, here's the thing: that thread paired with an immediate um, immediate announcement of the unwinding of the the Russian relationships by Binance seemed to me like an admission of guilt. 
a public admission of guilt. And, you know, we know that the Wagner um, group had, was using Binance for payment now, like that's not a controversial thing. So the depths of where this goes is, is like even more, even more shocking than I think any of us understood. We have to remember that six months ago, Binance represented about 50% of the, the, um, like exchange off chain volume. And as their, you know, tentacles in probably a thousand startups in space, like this is not FTX. This is not Mt. Gox. This is something that is like much, much more significant if true. Um, and I wanted to kind of unpack with you guys of what are, what are your thoughts on what the implication is? If this is true, because for me, it's like, it's a, it, it could be something that we have never seen before. And we've seen a lot, you know, in this space, obviously. Yeah. I, I did a podcast with, uh, Travis recently on, on Binance, my TLDR, it's not super long. This or descriptive. is Travis it's... Kling from Ikigai who lost all his money on FTX. For yeah, exactly. So he, he's, he's been through this sadly. Um, and you know, clearly knows what to look for and, and the signs. He has a, a great thread, like bulleting out every single thing that Binance has done. That's a little sus and it's solid. I, I, my take is that I think CZ is too rich and I think Binance makes too much money for there to be any fraud. I think it's just killing the golden goose on a scale that doesn't make any sense to me. As for like the regulatory KYC, OFAC violation, stuff like that, I think, yeah, they probably definitely get hit for stuff like that. Everybody and their mother was on Binance the last couple of years until recently. But I don't know. I think that anything less than a full, I think if there's no fraud, the market may actually rally because I think people are pricing in a pretty disastrous unwind. And I don't think that's the case, but I know I might be the outlier here. Santi, any implications uh, that you draw? I, I, I'm not going to comment on, on the rumors, which I think a lot of it is at this point that I think there is a bit of a dynamic where people want to find the next FTX. Um, now, I think we should always be incredibly skeptical and curious at the same time. Like in crypto, it will always serve you well to be, yes, we're all optimists, but you have to remain highly skeptical. That's just the Having those two has, I think, served me well. I think will serve anyone well. And you should always be wary of centralized institutions. I mean, that's why we're here. Yeah. And so, I don't, I don't want to offer anything because I, I'm not close to it. I, I don't have a strong view. I am cautious, as I am cautious with any centralized party, because as I am cautious with the financial and like system as a whole, like. It is not transparent. All right, and, here's and here's a so question. Like, you, it's more interesting to think about what will happen to your point, Ryan, if yeah. this goes down. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a huge reset, like like way more than FTX. All right, here's a question: How much of the Binance bullets that Travis shared, these dozens of things that they've done wrong, were supposedly done wrong? How much of that is a hyper growth company which has scaled? to the, the largest crypto company we have in a matter of years versus actual fraud. Like every company has growing pains, whether you're a startup or whether you are the literal largest company in crypto. So I'm not sure how much of it is actual deathly issues or more so, you know, a major company scaling in a new space that can't be domiciled in the US. Like, do you know, you know where I'm going with that or? 
Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that's very valid, right? That like, and also by some metrics, uh, until, you know, until ChatGPT and OpenAI, Binance was the fastest growing company ever, right? Um, and so clearly they were growing in an, in an uncontrolled fashion. And some of these things were probably more, um, carelessness rather than maliciousness. Um, however, you know, there are a number of data points that indicate, um, that carelessness descended into recklessness. Like if you're financing, if you're providing payment services directly and emailing back and forth from the Wagner group who are like slaughtering Africans all over the continent, you know, that's a moment where you really got to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself what you're doing here. And if you need more money or if you need this type of business, the, the fact that they, you know, two days after a bunch of, of rumored tweets, um, publicly announced unwinding of their Russian operations for me looked like, looked like admission of guilt. Um, that was a bad look. They probably should have, have, have timed the PR on that a little bit better. Um, but you know, I think the important thing is anybody listening here, if you have your money on Binance and you don't have a hardware wallet, you don't belong in the space. Get out. Shut it down. Sell it. Get it. Right. You got, you cannot be like, you can be using Binance. There's a lot of cool tools there and it's an interesting product. But if you're storing your funds capital, your LPs capital on Binance in this moment, considering the range of rumors uh, circulating, I would question yeah, that's, that's the negligent. competency of that. Yeah, I would that's question. Being Again, that's that's reckless, right? I mean, I totally agree with you. Like, I, I think that you just—it's like you don't want to be a turkey, a Talib turkey. Like, if there's a remote, if there's a greater than X percent, if there's a great thing that someone said while FTX was going down, says if there's a rumor, act quickly, then think. And acting quickly here is not selling everything. It's just there's an alternative. Get a hardware wallet, store yeah. it there, and then figure out how all these things shape up. You're like, you know what I mean? Like the risk is just asymmetric and it is, you never want to do yep. anything that puts you out of business. Storing everything, all your crypto in a, any exchange or any single hardware wallet is, uh, is negligent. Like you yep. have the Horcrux model as a fan of Harry Potter that I am segregate into hundreds of wallets. It, it, do, it doesn't cost anything to set up a safe like a Gnosis safe, multi-sig, sign two out of three. It's free, folks. Yep. Now, go get a uh, ledger at 70 bucks. A last okay. item that I would say on this is I would say Travis's tweet storm or, or you know, bullet points along with, um, you know, a bunch of other people who, who got really, really uh, badly hurt in the FTX uh, uh, debacle could possibly show a glimpse into what uh, American politicians are thinking. You see all these people wanting to point at Binance and hurt Binance. I would guess the hundreds of politicians that that took money from Sam Bankman-Fried probably told him in their last conversation, don't worry, CZ is going down too. Uh, and it feels like there's a vendetta that anybody who is really badly hurt in that FTX uh, fiasco in some way, shape, or form, blames Binance, and he is just, you know, CZ at this point has just made too many uh, enemies with the brazen, you know, very aggressive 
some would say, arrogant approach that he took in the days following the FTX collapse. Uh, and so it would not surprise me if behind closed doors in America, and I don't have any privileged information on this, I'm just speculating, but it would not surprise me if, if high-level politicians uh, are looking at this from a vendetta perspective, especially those on the Democrat side of the aisle. Tommy, uh, you, you obviously are really close. You've, talked, you've interviewed uh, Travis, and um, I'm curious what you think in terms of the outcome here. Like, there's, there will be some enforcement action. I mean, there's just a body of evidence. Um, and what I've seen is there probably was some wrongdoing, particularly because the rules are not set in place. So when the rules are not set, then they can, you know, it's difficult, to, you know. But there are some things that I think are pretty damning in, in that DOJ. Like when the DOJ brings an action against you, it's different than the SEC. Like the DOJ, the DOJ action is far meatier. <laughs> Yeah. And you, you don't fuck you with argue. the DOJ. Like, yeah, yeah, like when yeah. the DOJ comes to you and knocking on the door, it's because they have a body of evidence. It's not like, hey, we're probing. We want information. It's like, no, we know you're doing some wrong. Like just there's an action. <laughs> so my point to you is, do you think it's a settlement? A huge, huge fine. Does that put Binance at risk of insolvency? Uh, Ryan, maybe that's your point. You know, maybe that's a way to take them down. Or do they, I mean, they're already out of the U.S. pretty much. I mean, volume is zero. All the execs have left. So they're out of the U.S. mostly. Um, so how do you think about like the second, third order effects here? What What's the viability of Binance going forward? I think, Ryan, you might have a better answer than me here. Oh, come what do on. You... I, no, I mean, I think... I, the, the problem is like, I think it's, I think it's either two extremes, right? I think it's either they're like, and one of the DOJ press release, or not a press release, but on a news report, I think somewhere along the lines, it mentioned that either the DOJ or the SEC was worried about the solvency of Binance if they were to issue something that would cause a bank run, right? Which kind of begs the question, like, one, is that report accurate? But two, why would that ever happen? If you have all the assets, then there's no possibility of that happening, right? Because everyone could withdraw. So either they know something that's amiss or they don't. So I think it's either extreme bad case scenario where they're is some sort of hole or some sort of fraud, which I really don't understand how there could be unless CZ is funneling money out to support BNB price or something like that. Or there's, you know, KYC OFAC violations, which I don't know what the penalty for that is in some sort of settlement. And honestly, I think people in the US have a fantastic alternative through Coinbase and Kraken. I mean, so I yeah. think people will be pretty much okay. Like, I don't know if you guys saw it today, but so, Coinbase is on Capitol Hill with little beer cans of cold brew with a stand, stand <laughs> with crypto, and it's incredible marketing. Like they're doing all the lobbying, super legitimate. They're finally going right? on the offense. Yeah, they're going yeah. on the offense, but they're doing it in a super clean, long-term view way, and it's it's really nice to see. Yeah, one thing I would say is that the concerns about Binance's solvency are definitely totally unfounded. Um, Dean will shoot me for saying this, but because we've been, you know, been analyzing NEV in the space for now a couple of years, we approximately know how much CZ has made, um, in NEV on his own chain. And it's an ungodly amount of money. It is a staggering sum of capital. So he has, he's well capitalized. He's, he's fully Isn't capable. Isn't he like the largest or one of the largest, sums. like top five Bitcoin holders? As well, for sure. I yeah. mean, I don't, I don't know that like empirically, but we know we've been able to reason through how much money he's made. Um, 
in MEV, and that's only one of his income streams. And it's a lot of money. <laughs> where, where is he making the yeah. MEV from, Brian? Like which which chains, which well, operations? I mean, like Binance, they, because Binance is effectively POA, right? And I would assume that he probably knows a decent number of the validators and maybe is a validator himself. There's a unique advantage in MEV on, on Binance that, that somebody in that power position would hold. Um, that's a... That's a whole other topic to unpack. Like I personally would think that the front running your own centralized exchange is maybe <laughs> not even as egregious as, as MEV in your own chain. MEV in your own chain is like, what the actual fuck in my view. Um, and I'm not saying that it's him. Uh, but like our analytics show that there's certainly a big dog whale in the BSC chain that has made an unfathomable amount of money over the last four years. That actually is so messed up because you you convince people to come to your chain because of your exchange and your reach, and then you turn around and you MEV the users that you convince to bring over. Like that is as as Dean says, you just cucking them, right? You're just <laughs> cucking all these users. <laughs> Santa, you brought a good a good third topic idea to discuss, kind of. Things that are flying under the radar a bit, uh, things that are like overlooked, TK, mm -hmm. intense, investing. Where do you want to start with there? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think it's just general idea. Like, I'm of the mind that, look, irrespective of market cycles, like you can be in a raging bull and you can find gems. You could be in a raging, like you can be in a terrible bear and you could do terrible investments. Like there are some rounds right now that are raising a ton of money at pretty high valuations. And I'm I'm a very much uh, ascribed to the view of Howard Marks here, founder of Oak Tree, says price is really the everything, and that's where people really miss the mark, right? Uh, you could say, oh, Ethereum is like you know is is the best, you know, it, it has the most developer mind share, it has all this ecosystem, but what about the price? Forty two is different than two than one. Um, it's hard though for an asset class like crypto to think about, well, how do you value these things? Is it how do you value meme and attention? Versus, you know, at the end, but also there's a ton of data that is produced by these blockchains, which are data rich. So it's very interesting because you could do fundamental analysis, like Maker as an example. You could do fundamental analysis on Maker. You'd have done it three years ago and said, wow, they are spitting out cash flow. It's trading at like sub 10 PE, which is distressed. Um, it is an early stage company with a ton of potential, you could argue, if you believe in crypto. And it is profitable. Like if you were gone, down Silicon Valley, say you're Rune, you have a pitch deck and the pitch deck doesn't have anything. You, instead of, you know, control F blockchain and crypto and swap it with, um, you know, FinTech, Rune could have gone to Silicon Valley and says, hey, look, we're a five, six year old startup. We have X amount of users. These are our metrics, super transparent dashboard. These are a growing number of loans. Um, this is the cash flow that we're getting. We're, you know, five, six years into the journey and we're valued at X. And we're earning why, like immediately he would have, it, that is a unicorn, like just does not exist. Like, like, and so, but, but of course, you know, we're talking about crypto, so that's, you know, uninvestable, but yeah, crypto markets are behave really strangely, right? I mean, it, it's sort of like, can you be patient? Cause I'll, at the end of the day, I do believe fundamentals show up. And when you think about stuff that will endure the test of time, like legacy DeFi is incredibly interesting to me because these are protocols that have 
withstood a very adversarial environment. DeFi has been in the bear market, like relative to ETH, every DeFi protocol chart looks like crap. And it looked like crap even before rates started making any moves. Uh, and so the question is, when's that going to turn? And if it's going to turn? And so what are the catalysts? I, I think you need to understand like, what is the catalyst? Because if there are no immediate catalysts, just hold ETH, candidly. Like, like, and that's always a default. Or go to treasuries in this environment. So a, a bit of a ramble. I do think that like DeFi as a category is, is, is overlooked. Um, and I think it's here to stay. I think it, it has a lot of staying power and also Lindy to then, the question really is, what's the metric here? What's the catalyst TVL? Is it going to be another L2? Is it going to be, uh, you know, another flavor of stable coins? Like what is it going to take for DeFi to, to come back in the limelight? And I don't really know. What are the metrics that you're using to, to drive signal on that? Like, you know, something that we talk about is TVL to FTV, but is FTV the correct metric or is it, you know, like five year, token inflation divide or multiplied by value. Um, how, like, how are you looking through metrics that, that drive, a, you know, to, in a, in a Howard Marks, um, mm. sort of school of thought, you know, having these, these key metrics that, that drive indicators of, of, of value, you know, taking a value investing approach to crypto for mm. the first time. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, Tommy, I don't know if you want to jump in here. Um, but you know, for instance, I'll start with ex- things that I've seen investors do probably wrong. And we we're talking about fully diluted versus circulating. Mm-hmm. I think just looking at one or the other or the two can is, is a bit misleading at times. Um, I think you need to understand what the emission schedule looks like. And it's fairly common. Probably look at what is one, like, to- like emissions year one year out, two year out, three years out, 10 years out, five years out. And then think about, okay, one of them might have like an emissions curve that looks like that, which is, you know, in five years, you're going to be reaching your total circulating supply. And so that has a lot of pressure in the market, right? Those tokens coming live, maybe investors unlocking and their sell pressure might be a good opportunity to then time when you're going to want to build a position if you know people are going to unlock. And the other times you could have dynamic emission schedules, like, you know, you're intimately familiar with Filecoin that are based on some sort of parameters as the network grows, more tokens get emitted, which it makes sense, right? And it's like up to like a hundred years or like 40 years out, right? So at that point, you don't want to be looking at fully diluted, right? Um, you, you're better off understanding the emission curve, right? Um, and so in isolation, you could look at Filecoin when launch and the token hit a price where you're like, oh, this is like 0.3% of all of world's GDP. That, that's crazy. In reality, very little tokens there. Uh, in circulation. And so that's a big mistake, I think. Um, and the other really is you need to understand the type of business model. An exchange like Uniswap, completely different than a money market like Compound and Aave and Maker. Totally different metrics, right? On the money market side, what's the most important thing? How many loans are being emitted, right? What's the average duration of the loan? Because the protocol earns fees on that, right? And so, yeah, TVL directionally is very important, right? You want to see that number grow. You also want to see the kind of the turnover of those loans um, and the kind of the retention of the user, right? Say, what's the average, you know, for, for the user of, of that is opening up a loan and compound, is he also using Aave and Maker? And what is that wallet share, right? If he has a hundred, like $100 of loans outstanding or supplying certain assets, like how is that distributed across all the money markets? Uh, for an exchange, 
TVL is not really relevant at all. It's really the utilization, right? Like if you compare Uniswap to practically every other AMM out there, Uniswap is like orders of magnitude is more efficient in that with that capital, meaning the turnover of that, right? There's liquidity pools and the trading volume of that. Like if you have $100, $100 in, in sort of the liquidity pool, how much of that gets traded on a daily, weekly, monthly basis is vastly superior to any other AMM out there. And so that's really, in my mind, the most important metric, right? And so ultimately a combination of things, you know, you, you can, I, I don't want to stop here, but then you can look at all the on-chain analytics of, you know, Maker, for instance, like the popular trade, when you saw for selling, you saw like one of some of the largest holders on-chain moving the coins to an exchange to liquidate. So, you know, you, you, it's super interesting, right? Because you can do fundamental analysis. You also need to have a bet on how big these markets are going to be. And in what time frame? Um, is it going to outperform the underlying benchmark, ETH, Bitcoin, treasuries? And then also understand what are other like large holders doing? So, you know, in this asset class, you guys have been around for a while, but you, you, you're like a, a VC, but you also are, can be a hedge fund analyst and high frequency <laughs> trader if you can. And I don't, it's just intellectually super stimulating to kind of be able to do all of that. Yeah. It kind of comes together in this sort of emerging idea that I, I, I think we're all playing around with and a whole bunch of people are, are circling around in the space right now of this idea of liquid venture, right? That the investment principles have, have like venture-like components to it. You know, do we, um, you know, do we believe in, in the team behind it? Do we believe in, in like really uncommon value that, that, that this can unlock? But because crypto is liquid effectively from like the series A um, to compare it to traditional venture, you can take a better risk adjusted approach uh, where again, you can, you know, take some capital off the table or, or, or dial back into something when it's getting to a point where purely on a PE basis, it's making sense. And that's really the, that's one of the driving forces that I think we spend every day asking ourselves in, in early stage products outside of, of, of just core ETH is, you know, what is the cash flow the thing is throwing off? And then do they have the courage to accrue the cash flow to the token holders? So for example, like a DYDX, you know, throws off really, really great cash. It's trading at a, a 6.5 times uh, earnings, but they don't have you know, for one reason or another, they have not decided to accrue that value to the token holders. That combined with your previous point of massive jumps in inflation overnight, I think we're like two months out from it, just a huge inflation spike has left that, you know, from an outside perspective, most people would say undervalued, something trading at six, 6.5 times like free cash flow. Uh, you know, with all the volume that it has, all the great developers it has, Antonio's a phenomenal CEO, so on and so forth. But then there are these other, these other inputs that you have to consider, like, hey, there's about to be a massive spike, and, um, and and so on and so forth. But I think it's just really, you know, I'm really excited about the moment at hand to be able to finally bring value investing principles to crypto. That it's not just like pie in the sky. You know, uh, if, if it could be some percentage of the total value of gold, then it's worth, you know, 
a hundred billion trillion dollars that we can now actually look at these things from a cash flow perspective. And Maker is a great a great example of one of the first things you could look at from a cash flow perspective. And DeFi, I think you know, in a year or two, maybe three tops, all DeFi will be priced based on cash flows. Once we're able to actually accrue the value to the token holders, and we can get away from this, like, oh, it's not a security, then 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 it'll just be priced on cash flows. Tommy, let me ask you a question on this point because this is something that it gets commonly debated, like Sushi versus Uni. One was distributing the earnings back to stakeholders, like people that were staking Sushi. Uni mm-hmm. is not, right? It could be voted in, but it's not. And so for better or for worse, the kind of the regulatory environment and lack of clarity has handicapped our ability to design token structures that make sense. I mean, these protocols spit out cash, but there's also this kind of, debate like what do you do with that cash like it's very uh, uncommon for an early stage venture project that to be spinning out cash and the question is should you reinvest that in the business what does that reinvesting actually mean as a protocol what is that like dydx and uniswap doing without treasury that admin contract or do you distribute it back to stakeholders if and when you know you have clarity so i don't know what the right answer is i think it depends but i'm curious to get your thoughts on, on that and, and Just- if it factors into your investment decisions just to build on that for you, Tommy, how do you look at it when, in the case of, say, a DYDX and, and a, a Uniswap, they've done massive successive rounds of equity raises and token raises, and they have two sets of constituents who, by the way, are not the same people. And how do they, like, is it a regular thing overlap, or is it? Sometimes there's or, not, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. or is it just a question of what constituent they're t- trying to appease, right? Yeah, Disclosure, we're investors in DYDX, and I, I just had um, Antonio on the podcast this week, and it's it's ridiculous. They've done a trillion dollars in volume, right? Like, it, it's crazy. And his since confidence- inception. Yeah, since inception. And his confidence as a founder is is hard to beat. He, uh, he is really dedicated and just really dialed in. Um, as for the value flows, I think Sushi added the fee as a differentiator versus Uniswap during the vampire attack, just something that they can do differently that Uniswap didn't have. So I'm not sure if- you know, we could make like a long-term view of that. I also think DYDX is moving to a Cosmos chain for for obvious reasons to control their stack. And they have a use case where, where they need to do that and edit a lot of the technicals. But I also think it's pretty clearly an unspoken regulatory reason. Like let's drive actual value to the token because you'll need it for nodes, you'll need it for other reasons. And it's easier to for the community to make changes. As for the breakup between equity and tokens, Ryan, to answer your question, I don't think there's any good way to do it. I think it has to be hotly debated and somewhat decided before you make the investment, right? Because if you're going to invest in a $25 million token that has an equity component and 50% of the value is flowing to the equity, you're not investing at 25 mil on the token. You're investing at 50 mil on the token, I think, in my mind, or, yeah. or even there's worse. There's usually a two right? to one relationship, right? Two to one, but... If, that makes it even worse because now if you're two to one, you're 25 mil equity, 50 mil token, and now half the value flow flowing to the equity. Now you're at 100 mil on the token, in my mind, on the valuation. So it, it gets even worse there. We're running low on time, guys. What should we pivot to for our last topic? Well, Tommy, you, you've you been under, uh, in terms of the audio, Ryan and I have been talking a lot. I know you want <laughs> it's to good, talk though. about No, well, yeah, but you have a lot. I'd love for you to share your thoughts on zero knowledge proofs because this is a topic going back to the opening that was, it is hot in these conferences. You have multiple different flavors. As far as I can remember, zero knowledge proofs have been like one of the holy grails of crypto. 
it offers so much potential. It's been slow though. Uh, and this might be one of the things that gets overlooked, like the amount of progress that is now being made in an exponential manner. And these unlocks in terms of the tech, the cost, the viability of it, I think it's come a long way. And it's something that perhaps crypto as a whole is a bit skeptic. Like if you've been around for seven years, like don't talk to me about homomorphic encryption, zero knowledge proofs, and you know, <laughs> there's other categories, right? Um, that just are, uh, you know, feels like the p- folks are fatigued. But let, let's talk about that. And I want you to give us your take. Yeah. yeah why don't you um, run through that for us, Tommy? With the the with the the sort of lens of explain to people why zero zero knowledge, which has not had commercial success in the space and crude value. Why is that changing now? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I'll preface it with I'm not a developer or, or ZK coder. There's only a couple in the world that actually really understand the math at play here, like the LEs of Starquares of the world. But the the way that I've, my mental model for ZK is that it is the end game technology for scalability and privacy, right? Like being able to use math in a way where you can do massive amounts of transactions and or privacy and have privacy and roll that down to an L1 or a settlement layer without any guesses to its accuracy, right? It's all proven through math, which is different from optimistic rollups, right? Where where you have to hope and you do a fraud proof if not, is pretty much the end game for me, I think. I think it is for everybody, right? So the way I'm breaking it down is into three buckets. You have ZK EVMs, ZK VMs, and full-fledged standalone layer one ZK blockchains, right? A ZK EVM is something that's very compatible with Ethereum, right? You have the polygons of the world, scrolls, lineas through consensus, ZK sync, Kakarot, those that work directly with the EVM. Uh, it's easy to bring users, easy to bring liquidity, um, and you could work with it, right? But you're limited, right? You can't do as much because you're limited by the EVM, things like that. Then you have things like ZK VMs, things that are like purpose-built for proof, um, proving proofs, right? Like Starkware, the stuff that's 100 to 1,000 times more efficient at proving proofs since the language is purpose-built for doing that, right? You don't have the constraints of the EVM. That's like Aztec for privacy or like Starkware for scalability, um, and you can do that. And then you have layer one standalone blockchains like Aleo and Mina and things like that. Uh, you lose all the liquidity users in the ecosystem of Ethereum, but you could do hopefully much more unique things. So that's the breakdown where I'm at right now. Um, and I'm really struggling to figure out why most Alt L1 chains will survive the wrath of the best magic math in the world um, with the best ecosystem in the world being Ethereum right now. Um, obviously, I, I love the Solanas of the world. Like that's the best bet on a the fastest shared global state, bar none. Like that's the goal, right? Um, but yeah, I'm struggling with how alt ecosystems will survive as ZK tech comes online and we're a venture fund. We have to invest two to five years out. So it's tough to not get around that. Look, I think it's a great point. Let me, let me ask you a question. Say that, uh, one of these like deeply research based kind of like startups unlocks something huge in the zero knowledge space. What is stopping an existing L2 to fork that? and deploy it because they have the distribution skill. And like, look, when I, when I invested in scroll, uh, it was like, you know, they were the pioneers really in ZK VM. And, and then I, but I'm also an investor in like Arbitrum. And I would have guessed like, 
you know, I'm talking here, but I, if I'm in the Arbitrum camp, I'm saying, okay, I've already raised all this money. I clearly believe optimistic rollups are in the near to medium term, really viable to fill a lot of the demand. Uh, and that's good enough. And if for whatever reason, a team like Scroll or someone else really develops something that can unlock, like at one point you're going to reach a limitation in terms of optimistic rollup capacity, right? Maybe ZK, you know, tech allows for the next wave, but maybe that's seven, 10 years out. What's stopping Arbitrum from just using that tech and integrating it? And like, you know, they have the distribution. Like, I'm just kind of how you think, the question really is how you think about like the moat here. If someone develops something like gets forked and gets implemented and optimism could just deploy their own, right? Like, I'm just kind of yeah. curious. No, it, it's a good question. I don't, I don't have a great answer on the optimistic side. I actually have Steven and Ed from Arbitrum coming on the pod next week to, nice. to discuss the counter view. But the thing that I, I kind of laugh at is, and this is like an irrational take on my part, but you know we're human. We're allowed to have two sets of beliefs here. I love things like base because you have the, you know, you have the might of Coinbase, 150 million, 150 billion in liquidity and 100 million users, and you have zero fraud proofs. Right, like you're optimistic, you don't even have fraud proofs. But then you have something like zk with the Starkware, where you don't even need those things because everything is always proven by math. Right, so it is kind of a weird dichotomy. As for can other projects copy zk tech? Sure, I think they can. But two things: I think one, after you build an ecosystem, it's hard. Two, I don't think it's easy to copy zk. It's really, really, really hard math. And code, no, and like I, I don't think people it'll be in the easy. world that can do this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so less. so copying it'll be really really hard. Um, and honestly, I think the eventually the the tech will commoditize to what Ryan said earlier on on other things, right? And eventually it'll just become a biz dev game and a community game. And whoever wins that is going to have already started. I mean, play uh, sort of Polygon or what do they rebrand? Who's like already kind of executed on the strategy, right? They acquired Hermes. Um, mm -hmm. Like what is Jordy's actually? Is yeah, Jordy's in our, one of the our, smartest guys. our office, yeah. uh, and and one of those ten, you yeah, know, one, one of those, those ten people yeah. that can that can actually do this, you know. But that's a really interesting thing. I I look at this example really closely because because we share an office with Jordy, and the tech is very impressive. And I think this is true broadly of a number of things with Polygon, um, but I would. I would guess that they're disappointed in the amount of, of, of users and traction that the network has today, which causes me as an investor in this to question, like, is it that people don't care about it right now? Because it's got like literally, you know, single digit thousands yeah. of transactions per day on, on the CKEBM. And, or is it just that like, we haven't hit the knee of the curve and it's coming because you know, some catalyst will bring it. And then what is that catalyst? And that's, that's a question I, I suppose I have, have for both of you is that, is it a UI thing? Is it a, people don't actually care about privacy in the current context, or is it something else that has caused things like ZK EVM to not have the traction that we all expected and hoped for? That's a loaded question, my friend. And I think, I always go back to the example of what happened with BM, uh, Binance Chain when it launched. You know, PancakeSwap in the first month uh, acquired more users and was seeing more transactions than Uniswap. 
at that moment in time, you would have said and looked at that. Yeah, no one really cares about security. People are just chasing the next farm. And this is when, you know, DeFi was kind of hot. And, but now the staying power, you got to think of, look at these, not in isolation, not a three month window, but like over multiple years, at the end of the day, everyone that is in crypto today is a beta tester, beta user, given the level of risks and the number of users, like it's a very small crowd that uses these things. Um, I think I wouldn't take too much stock that it doesn't care. I do think that the best tech will win, not just the best marketer for this type of technology. Like when things break in crypto, it's not like when things break in web too. Like, like it is fundamentally like you don't mess around with crypto. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's no one to call. There's no 1-800 number. You can't peel back stuff. And if you do like it compromises trust, like ultimately you want to be building crypto products because security is the most important thing. Security is a, is a very broad and I think it can encompass many things and is different for folks, but fundamentally there's a reason why Ethereum is Ethereum where it is today and Bitcoin. And there's this idea of Lindy effect. And I ultimately think that like when you do hit and there's a killer game, there's a killer application, which we haven't really seen yet, then you have to think about, well, what's that flow going to be? Where's that wallet? Where's that exchange or aggregator, if you will, that might come from web two, right? Cause the, the retail demand is going to come and they're going to go through an aggregator, I think. And ultimately that aggregator will, whether it's PayPal, Visa, whoever it is, JP Morgan will fundamentally care about security and understand it well. And that's where I think they will evaluate these L2s. They will evaluate these L1s and say, yeah, we're going to make the decision to push our users to this particular chain because it's the most secure and security begets liquidity and that, you know, increases security, I think. And so it's that flywheel that Ethereum is on, maybe Solana, that it will be hard to overlook if you're not as secure as uh, another L2. Yeah, I, just too Santi, early I, tell, I, right? I like that framing. I, I, Ryan, just to go back to your, your question originally, like why hasn't this stuff really taken off? I think that I just had Ellie from Starkware on the, the podcast this week and spoke to him or last week. And one of the th things that I thought was super interesting that he brought up was I asked him the question point blank. I said, how do you as a ZK VM compete with a ZK EVM, right? Like a polygon or something, because they have easy to port apps, users, they have liquidity. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward question, right? In a competition. And he said, look, you know, it's going to be hard, but you just cannot build the stuff that you can on a ZK EVM that you can with the flexibility the low cost, the speed, and the customizability of what we're doing with Cairo and we, with ZKVMs. And honestly, it made a lot of sense, but it also pointed to your question on timelines. Why hasn't this stuff taken off? I think it's just really early for really hard tech, right? We've just started to get like mainnets launched. We just started to get languages solidified. Like I think that the, the arc of technology yeah. is in the ZK favor, but I, I do think it's quite early. Yeah, you're right. I mean, ZKVM only came out in in February or sorry, in March on, on Polygon. And so it's far too, far too early to, um, to judge. Uh, I would, you know, I would challenge the Starkware guys a on the computational density of the Stark proof and it remains, you know, it, it will create quite, quite the blockchain bloat, um, in, uh, in, in its current format, but there are smart guys and hopefully they, they continue to work on it. And then, 
you know, what is this magical thing that you can't do on Ethereum and Polygon that you can magically do on these other things? Like, is there a, is there a hard example of, of, of something? Because the more and more we look out across the space, the more I think we all see the aggregation of mindshare and probably over time of capital, um, consolidating around the ETH and the ETH layer two ecosystems, right? And that's why I continue to be a really strong believer in Polygon, because even though ZKEVM doesn't have traction, it's really like once we hit me in the curve on that use case, it's probably Polygon that's that's in the pole position. Um, but I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing for our listeners to just go home and, and just comment, you know, feel free to comment on, on, on how you think and, whether it's marketing or tech that will prevail, I think it's quite early. I think we can all agree on that. There's so many risks. And so <laughs> I think you also have to think about, are you being compensated well enough uh, to take mm -hmm. these level of risks? Certainly, you know, a yield of sub 5% on DeFi ain't going to cut it folks. Cause you can just park it in treasuries. Uh, but look, I think this has been a fantastic episode. Uh, we'll leave it there. I think that we've, we've obviously identified a thing of in the bear market, things are overlooked more so probably than well, Generally speaking, markets overlook things. They're not efficient, certainly not in an early stage of crypto. Um, there's so many things that we can continue to talk about. So in the next episode, I, I'd love to just go deeper on things that we think are being overlooked um, because I'm of the mind that you can find fantastic opportunities in any market cycle, in any market environment. And and it's quite early asset class. And so I think there's so many good things here. Uh, just retail has access to these incredibly young startups, not all of which are good. But the fascinating thing here is data is produced in real time and you can have, you have so many tools at your disposal and so many people, a lot of it is open source. So you can learn about this stuff, not just with podcasts, but just going on chain and using tools and analytics. So it's just an incredibly exciting asset class. Um, so I want to just leave it there, folks. It's always a great discussion, Tommy and Ryan. Awesome time, guys. Thanks, guys.